The FDA appears on the verge of authorizing Novavax's COVID vaccine, opening an alternative booster for most Americans. Also on vaccines, the White House has outlined a plan to vaccinate the youngest children pending FDA approval for their vaccines. Is there a cure for rectal cancer? A new study showed 100% cancer removal for a new immune drug. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. It's been more than two years since this happened. Stay at home, that is the order tonight from four state governors as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. New York, California, Illinois, and Connecticut, all ordering non-essential employees to stay home. Since we've been living through a global pandemic that's claimed upwards of 15 million lives, a million of them right here in the US. But the experience, the day-to-day of the pandemic was so much more than that. From wiping down individual boxes of cereal in those first few weeks to getting really, really comfortable in sweatpants, Living day-to-day through a pandemic has indelibly changed how we think about our world. For the millions of us who've lost loved ones, there's no back to normal. At best, there's an after the pandemic, and we're not even quite there yet. That's why this news is so frightening. Concerns are growing now over the potential spread of monkeypox here in the U.S. One case already confirmed in Massachusetts, and now... Another outbreak of a scary-sounding disease even before we've gotten done with this one? No, please no. Monkeypox is a zoonotic viral illness that spreads most easily through direct contact, but also through aerosols from infected people. It spreads commonly in a number of animal host species, jumping into humans when there's contact. First described in wild monkeys from Central Africa, it was given the name monkeypox. But it has a lot of similarities to a disease that has a long history in humans, variola, better known as smallpox. But before you flip out, monkeypox is both less severe and less transmissible than its cousin we eradicated decades ago. We'll talk quite a bit about the virus that causes monkeypox with our guest today, but I want to take a second to talk about smallpox because it's one of the most important public health stories in history. See, for centuries, smallpox wreaked havoc on people. There's evidence that it infected Egyptian mummies and was written about by Chinese scribes as early as the 4th century. It decimated native peoples of the Americas when it was brought over, deliberately used as a weapon of war by Europeans. But as early as the 16th century in China, the Ottoman Empire, and Sudan, People began to recognize that being exposed to harmless amounts of smallpox from other infected people who were recovering could protect people from the disease, should an outbreak occur. It was called variolation. There were various means, including snorting ground smallpox scabs, I know that sounds disgusting, from another person or stabbing yourself with a knife that had been used to stab someone who was infected and recovering. Over time, that evolved into light scratching. Every scratch left a small, short-lived rash which afterwards left the variolized subject at lower risk for smallpox should not break occur. This was the earliest precursor to vaccinations. People had observed for some time that milkmaids were generally immune to smallpox. Physician Edward Jenner postulated that exposure to pus from the udders of cowpox-infected cows was the reason why. In the first known vaccination, he inoculated a nine-year-old boy with pus from the blisters of a cowpox-infected milkmaid named Sarah Nelms. He then tried to variolize the boy, which, if you remember, should leave a rash, but no rash developed. The boy was immunized. It was the first vaccination. Smallpox vaccines have changed a lot since then, but the smallpox vaccine has been probably the most effective vaccine in human history. And that's because smallpox no longer exists outside a few highly secure research labs. It was eradicated in 1980, just 21 years after the WHO undertook a campaign to eradicate it. It was painstaking public health work identifying every known contact of someone infected with smallpox, and then quickly forming a vaccination circle around them in a technique known as ring vaccination. 
encircling and ultimately eliminating smallpox of transmission opportunities. This works because smallpox, like monkeypox, has a long incubation period, the time it takes for someone to develop symptoms and transmit the virus after they're infected. That means that even after they're exposed, you still have time to vaccinate them and prevent the infection from taking root. There's no telling how many lives public health saved through smallpox eradication, but all of that requires a competent public health system, one that lets nobody slip through. It also requires public trust, that people are open, honest, and committed to protecting one another. Smallpox represents the power of a competent, capable, committed public health system. But in some respects, the eradication of smallpox may have set us up for a monkeypox outbreak. See, smallpox vaccines protect against monkeypox too, just like cowpox. But since it was eradicated, we no longer vaccinate most people against smallpox. So population immunity against monkeypox has waned. The current outbreak has a long history. As far back as 2017, cases emerged in Nigeria, a place where monkeypox was rare before then. It's been spreading in Nigeria ever since, and efforts by Nigerian public health officials to sound the alarm have largely gone unheeded. Monkeypox requires close contact to spread, and this outbreak appears to have spread from two raves in Belgium and Spain, and has largely infected gay and bisexual men who had attended. But I want to be clear about something here. There's a long and dangerous history of blaming communities for diseases that first emerge among them. Monkeypox can infect anyone, and so it's critical not to stigmatize certain communities as we stupidly did during the HIV-AIDS pandemic. It doesn't help, and it contributes to the kind of stigma that we talked about last week with Heather Zadie. We're now at a critical point in the outbreak. There have been more than 1,200 cases across 30 countries worldwide, including dozens of cases here in the U.S. But if you remember, viruses go, well, viral. And stopping this outbreak early is absolutely critical. Our guest today, Professor Anne Ramoyne, is a professor of epidemiology at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. She's been studying monkeypox for two decades. I wanted to really understand what's at stake with this outbreak, so I reached out to her for a conversation. Here's Professor Anne Ramoyne. Okay, um, ready to go? You bet. Okay, can you introduce yourself for the tape? Sure, my name is Anne Ramoyne. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Professor Ramoyne, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us today. You are uh, much sought after right now, considering the news, and you've been stu studying this virus for about two decades. Um, and so uh, before anybody knew there was a monkeypox, uh, you'd been studying it, and i um, just really grateful for you to take the time uh, to chat with us and educate us about it. So let, let's just jump right in. What is monkeypox? First of all, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here and to, um, to actually meet you in person as opposed to being on a split screen somewhere on uh, some CNN late night um, discussion about COVID. So now we get to talk about my favorite topic, monkeypox, something I've been working on for a long time. I've been working on this virus for two decades. So now people are finally interested in discussing it. I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about monkeypox. Finally, somebody's listening. Been there, <laughs> done that, just not just not physically. So, <laughs> so right, exactly. So, so monkeypox is a zoonotic orthopox virus. It's a cousin of smallpox. Uh, it was first discovered in 1958 in a colony of monkeys. And this, um, this happened at a, at a point when uh, they were testing polio vaccines so they had, you know, had a lot of monkey colonies. And, and so it was the first time that they'd ever seen a pox-like illness in, in monkeys. So that's why it was named monkeypox. It was then first discovered in humans in 1970 in a boy in the Democratic Republic of Congo at the very end of the smallpox eradication mm. campaign because they were doing viral culture on any 
case of rash illness just to be able to determine exactly what it was. Uh, and as a result, they discovered that monkeypox actually infected humans. Hmm. And when you talk about zoonotic, you know, it's one of those uh, big words and most folks recognize the zoo part, right, which has something to do with animals. Can you talk to us about what the characteristics of zoonotic diseases are and um, maybe what makes them so hard to, to get rid of? So a, a virus that's zoonotic is, is a virus that actually resides in animals naturally. And it uh, can spill over into humans when humans are in contact with these animals. But the natural reservoir isn't necessarily humans. That, that's really helpful. And the, the reason I ask, right, is because, because oftentimes we sort of assume that the kinds of viruses or bacteria or parasites or even fungi that, that can infect us only infect us. And oftentimes when you're talking about uh, this virus, obviously monkey isn't a name, but even something like COVID, um, you have to appreciate that we are constantly sharing space and air and contact with a whole set of animals that are really quite similar to us, particularly when you talk about monkeys. And um, the implications of virus control uh, can be really informed by that. So I want to ask, you know, what are the signs and symptoms uh, of, 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 of monkeypox and um, how is it spread? Uh, well, so the, the, the signs and symptoms of monkeypox depends upon if you're talking about the West African clade, which is what people are really interested in right now because that's what we're seeing spreading globally, or the Central African or Congo Basin clade, which is what I um, have traditionally worked on in Democratic Republic of Congo. Both diseases start with fever, malaise, fatigue. You can have headaches, flu-like symptoms, but then uh, you end up with a very characteristic lymphadenopathy, so swollen lymph nodes. Uh, then there, a characteristic rash appears. Now, uh, this rash is often focused in the extremities, the hands, the feet, the face, uh, the genitals. But the West African clade, which appears to be milder than the Central African clade, has really recently been associated with a very limited clinical presentation, which really only can sometimes only include a few pox marks. And so you can see why it would be very easy for somebody to just to misdiagnose this or to ignore it and that it could just potentially um, go unnoticed, uh, which is probably what's been happening. The Congo Basin clade tends to be, as we understand it, tends to be more severe, is associated with higher mortality, and um, generally speaking, a wider uh, or a, a much more um, extensive rash. That's helpful to understand, right? Because all of the symptoms that you described associated with this Western African clade um, are pretty nonspecific, right? I mean, you, you can get uh, that, that, that sort of traditional um, viral syndrome with uh, the lymphadenopathy. Um, lymphadenopathy, I know it can be a big word for folks. So for listeners, it's that feeling that when you have a cold or some sort of infection, or if you have a really bad cold sore, when you turn your face and your face hits your shoulder, you feel like a, a pressure and a pain in uh, your jawline. That, that's lymphadenopathy. What that is is a chain of lymph nodes that are filling up with blood cells that are going out to fight whatever infection that is. And because most infections start with your face because your nose, your eyes, and your mouth are there, um, you tend to feel it most in your uh, in your face. But um, but that's pretty nonspecific, right? You can get it with a cold sore. You can get it with monkeypox. Absolutely. Um, and then if you have a a couple of pox, you could imagine, well, I've got a couple pimples, weird outbreak. I might just change my facial routine. I'll be good. Um, and so you can imagine how people are missing it. 
Well, exactly. And so a couple of just interesting points here. The, the, you know, the, the main difference between smallpox and monkeypox is that monkeypox really caused the swelling of the lymph nodes, whereas smallpox did not. Um, so it's, it's, mm. it's this, this lymphadenopathy that we're talking about is, is pretty interesting in that, um, in that sense. So you, you end up with this rash. Um, often, in the way that we usually understand it, is it usually starts on the face and then spreads to other parts of the body. But like I said, you know, we've really understood now, as we're starting to really look for this virus, that there's um, you know a real range in this clinical presentation, and only having a few pox could make it make it very difficult. How does monkeypox spread? Um, so monkeypox. This is this is a, a, an important question, and the you know it's one of the, the the million dollar questions right now. But but what we know about monkeypox in the context in which we know it in rural sub-Saharan Africa and in peri-urban sub-Saharan Africa is that it it generally spreads well first when a person comes in contact with uh, you know a, an either an infected animal an infected person or materials that are in, uh, contaminated with the virus it it could be from an animal it could be a bite or a scratch or saliva or um you know from from hunting or butchering animals or by use of products that have um, been made from infected animals um but when we're talking about person-to-person contact, um, it's generally really close direct contact with body fluids or sores on the infected person, These this rash, or with materials that have touched those fluids or sores, you know, clothing or linens or any, you know, towels, those kinds of things. And of course, it certainly could be with, with respiratory uh, droplets face-to-face contact could certainly, you know, it could certainly result in infection. Anything that really constitutes close contact. And that's what we're, what we're, what we're really seeing right now um, is the, um, you know, it's, it's managed to make its way into populations outside of Africa and is spreading very likely due to close contact. Is there a difference in the transmissibility depending upon what phase you're in? So, I know that it starts with that um, that 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 viral syndrome that we talked about um, with the with the nonspecific viral uh, symptoms, and then and then it, it it you start to get the characteristic rash. Do you see more spread via aerosols early on with a movement to spread via via bodily fluid, or um, or is it pretty persistently spread via aerosols the entire time? Well, that's a good question, and I actually don't know the answer to that, and I'm not sure that that's been well characterized. Um, we do know that people are infectious at least until the, the rash has scabbed over and those scabs fall off, though it, it's possible it could be for longer. I mean, I think that this goes along with one of the questions that we really need to, uh, to, to get to, which is, you know, having a much better understanding of the, you know, the, the transmission dynamics of this virus and understanding clinical presentation and how all of this you know, works together. And we don't really know, could people be infectious in a pre-symptomatic phase or, you know, for the, or um, could they be asymptomatic and, and uh, infectious? We, we, just, we just don't have enough data because all of the studies that were done were done, um, you know, under, under very 
rural remote conditions until uh, the studies that were done in Nigeria. And those studies in Nigeria, you know, the, the Nigerian uh, scientists have stated very clearly that they just have not had the funds to, to be able to truly do the kind of investigations that would shed light on this. Mm. You know, it's an important reminder. One of the topics that we talk a lot about in the show is the notion of the deep inequity in research funding for diseases that disproportionately affect um, low-income people and uh, and um, the global south. And you know, this is an example of exactly why you should definitely care about the diseases that affect people who may not look like you or live in a place that you're from, because at some point uh, the world is extremely globalized, and at some point they could become the diseases that you suffer with. And the fact that we just don't know enough um, is not a function of the fact that monkeypox hadn't been around. It's a function of the fact that, you know, folks in in countries like ours haven't haven't been paying as much attention. I want to ask about treatments and, and preventives. Do we know how to treat uh, monkeypox? Do we know how to treat it well? And then uh, do we have a safe and effective vaccine? So, uh, you know, there are no, so in terms of treatment, there are no treatments that have been approved specifically for monkeypox, but there are antivirals that have been developed for smallpox specifically, and um, those have been. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of, of, of evidence that that suggests that they are beneficial to, to individuals who have monkeypox. I know, you know, there there are some studies that were en route uh, before this had uh, started but have not yet been done. So, so the first one is, um, is tecoviramat, also known as TPOX, and that's an antiviral medication that actually has been approved by the FDA for treatment of smallpox. You know, there's also a compassionate use authorization for this, um, for, for monkeypox during an outbreak. There's also cidofovir, which is another antiviral medication that uh, is actually for cytomegalovirus retinitis in, in uh, patients who have AIDS. So that's also something that's, that has been used. And then there's also vaccinia immune globulin, which has been used for complications due to um, vaccinia vaccination. Um, and that's also something that uh, could potentially be used. There's also Bryn cytofovir, which is another uh, antiviral med that was just recently um, licensed for use for for smallpox. So, you know, so there are a number of things that are kind of in the, that are available and are certainly being used uh, in the treatment of monkeypox now that we actually have cases that are, you know, in places where, where these these things are, are available. So we'll, we'll certainly learn about a lot more about how useful they are. You know, there are, there are several um, vaccines that are specifically against, um, you know, created to, um, uh, for smallpox, but the, the Genos vaccine, Genios vaccine, which is a, a two-dose vaccine, um, also has an indication for, for monkeypox. And then there's the ACAM 2000, which is um, specifically for use for smallpox, but can be used for monkeypox as well. So it seems like there's there's a lot of um, sort of general general use um, antivirals that have some reactivity against monkeypox. Most of them coming out of smallpox, considering the the, the clear similarities uh, in the viruses. And then similarly with um, with with vaccines. Have these vac- vaccines been used um, in communities where there have been persistent outbreaks? Whether you're talking about the Central African clade or the Western African clade. 
Well, um, there was a study in health workers in DRC for the, for the what's the the Genos vaccine now, which was it um, appeared to be pretty effective. And, and certainly right now, I think that there are many places that are employing ring vaccination and vaccination of contacts, which is which is really terrific. I mean, it's exactly what you want to see happening is that they're they're actually employing the, the tools that exist. And, you know, these vaccines are, are good not only for preventing um, disease as as pre-exposure prophylaxis, but also as post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, we think that they will very, um, you know, potentially avert infection or at, at least be able to um, reduce the severity of infection. Yeah, and, and that's important to, to understand. There's a, there's a long window um, within which the virus has to take hold, make home in your, your, your body before uh, it actually causes disease. And so that does offer an opportunity for us to, to get in there with a vaccine. Um, that can be effective even after someone's exposed. And um, we talked a little bit about uh, ring vaccination and the way that it was leveraged uh, to eradicate smallpox earlier in uh, the episode. But um, but the, the idea that it's being used against monkeypox now makes a lot of sense. Interestingly, right, listeners will have obviously the, the contrapositive of, of COVID in their minds. Um, this is what we've just come through. And um, there are some important differences between COVID and monkeypox, right? One of them is that you do have this this, this much longer incubation period um, that gives you opportunities to target vaccines in ways that you can't really with COVID. And then the second is that monkeypox is not nearly as transmissible um, as COVID. And I, I want to ask you now, the we, we, we talked about the million dollar question. This is the $10 million question. Is there going to be a monkeypox pandemic? Well, I mean, you know, we we have some choices here as a, you know, are we going to get in front of this or are we not? And, you know, because we have the tools to be able to to, to do that, but it's really going to take a serious concerted effort. It, you really can't compare COVID-19 and, um, and, and monkeypox. You know, SARS-CoV-2 is one of the most infectious viruses um, known to man. And monkeypox is just doesn't, doesn't have that same capacity to infect as well. It really does require, as we understand it, very close contact as the, the most standard way that, it, that it's going to transmit. You know, the stakes are high with monkeypox for, for a variety of reasons, but, but they're, it, they're different than they are for, for SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, the things that, that worry me about monkeypox is that if, if we don't get in front of this now, we're going to end up, you know, potentially with a, with a pox virus that will be circulating in humans, um, and we know when we, we give these viruses opportunity to, to spread, you know, they, they eventually, even a virus that's as stable as something like monkeypox, you know, we could see adaptation and improved fitness. And, and, and so we really do want to avoid that. And particularly if we start seeing it spread in populations that are immunocompromised. You know, we've we've talked about this with SARS-CoV-2 on you know numerous occasions that you know you give this virus an opportunity to to spread to another person, and the more people it spreads to, the more opportunity it has to replicate. And if it can replicate, then eventually you could end up with a constellation of mutations that that are advantageous to the virus, but not to humans. And so I think it's. You know, I think that that's a real concern that that we could see that happen. And even if we just see the virus established in human populations and circulating at a low level, you know, sooner or later, you're you're going to end up you're you're edging closer and closer to seeing some sort of zoonotic spillback effect. 
And, you know, I, I say, I've, I've said this before and I'll, uh, you know, I think that that outbreak in 2003 was really a, an important warning sign because what happened was it was Gambian pouch rats that were put next to, put next to prairie dogs. The prairie dogs, uh, the Gambian rats were infected with monkeypox. They infected the, the prairie dogs and then the prairie dogs ultimately went on to infect humans. And, you know, that just, demonstrates how, you know, this is a, a virus that has a wide host range. You know, monkeypox is a rodent virus. It's not a, primates are incidental hosts. Humans, you know, non-human primates and, and, and human primates are, are incidental hosts, really, um, as, we, as we understand monkeypox. And so I think that the, the problem of a reverse zoonotic spillover um, is real. And we've seen this with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, we've seen it with the white-tailed deer. We've seen it with mink farms, you know, and, and that's where you get into this. You know, you, you talked about this at the beginning where you were just trying to, you know, you were talking about zoonoses and, and the fact that this, you know, the, kind of the concept of one health, which is that everything is interrelated. And that's, that's really true. And, and something that we, that we have to consider that the, you know, that we are all part of this ecologic landscape and if this virus is able to become endemic in a wildlife species outside of Africa, you know, that really is problematic and we'll have to really reconsider how important it is for us to keep a pox virus at bay. And if, if we decide we are determined to do so, we may have to reconsider, uh, you know, vaccination strategies to, to, keep, um, to, to, to keep this virus under control. But once it's in animal... Um, reservoirs, it, it's very, very difficult to control. Yeah, and just just for folks who who um, who may not have followed the logic, right? We know that this is a virus that lives in rodents in sub-Saharan Africa. It incidentally falls into humans. Humans infect other humans. They travel around the globe. They infect other rodents in places where there wasn't previously the virus. And now all of a sudden it's infecting all of those rodents. So, you know, the prairie dog example is a good one. Or you could imagine a situation where someone uh, lives in a small cramped New York City apartment that's infected with rats. The rats pick up uh, monkeypox and soon enough um, it's endemic in rats in New York. And every time someone comes in contact with a rat, there's a risk of reinfection of a human. And now all of a sudden you're going from a outbreak to new endemicity, which means that it's just normal. It's part of baseline. It's one of those diseases that just infects this population simply because. And, um, you know, that brings us to, to the question of this particular outbreak and the public health response. And I, I'd love um, if you could give us a sense of uh, what is causing uh, or what has caused this particular outbreak? What is driving it? Why are we just hearing about monkeypox now? And then um, your sense of the public health response and what, what we need uh, to overcome the, you know, never scenario that you just laid out. Well, um, so here what's happened is, is that we've been seeing rising cases of monkeypox for, you know, two, for, for decades. We documented that in 2010. My uh, research team and my colleagues in DRC together, we, we really documented a, a 20-fold rise in the incidence of monkeypox since the cessation of smallpox vaccine. Um, which at that point had been 30 years. We were very concerned about this, this increase because we, we saw that it was much more than had been anticipated and um, based on the early models of, of monkeypox. Important to remember that those early models were based on the studies done in the early 80s, from 81 to 86. There were studies done in the DRC really to, uh, at, after the eradication of smallpox, truly to understand you know, whether or not this virus was something we needed to worry about. There were, 
after the disease surveillance that they did there were like 338 cases. And, um, you know, but the thing is, this virus really didn't have anywhere to go, right? It was most households, if they stopped vaccinating in DRC in 1982, and they were studying it from 1981 to 1986, you know, most households were almost all vaccinated except for very small children. So our understanding of this virus is really predicated at that time period, the, you know, are not the, um, you know, the, all of the issues related to transmissibility, clinical presentation, you know, all of those things were based on those really seminal important studies, but, you know, it was a long time ago in a very different epidemiologic and ecologic landscape. And, um, so. And just to, just to, um, interrupt there for a second. And that's because, that was a time when smallpox vaccines were common. And we talked earlier about what the what the preventive was. These are all vaccines against smallpox. And so if we were vaccinating people against smallpox, we were also vaccinating them inadvertently against monkeypox, which was reducing the spread of monkeypox at the time. So all of our baseline models are almost um, tainted by the fact that that was a time in a place where everybody was assumed to have some immune response to monkeypox. And now we live in a time where that's not the case. I wasn't vaccinated for smallpox. I, I don't know if you were, but but very few people are vaccinated for smallpox uh, unless you work in very particular settings. And that means that we're all pretty immune or naive. Right. Well, I, I was vaccinated when I started working on monkeypox because I was born... That makes um, sense. Uh, yeah. I was born right at the time when they stopped vaccinating. So I was like right on that cusp. And so I, I missed it only by a few months um, here in the United States. So I um, so I got vaccinated when I started working on monkeypox. But but yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the issue is, is that we just, you know, uh, we have waning population immunity and probably some level of individual immunity as well. But 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 really, this waning population immunity is is what's what's really tipped the scales here. And I think we've just kind of reached a threshold at which we now have, you know, the the vast majority of people are are naive to this virus or other pox viruses, and that's why over the last several years we've seen um, other pox viruses uh, spread as well. We've seen camel pox. We've seen um, a rodent pox in Alaska. We've seen ectromelia virus, which is mouse pox in Europe, vaccinia in um, Brazil. Uh, you know, so, so we've seen more and more, we've seen these spillover events that have occurred just because, you know, we don't have that baseline herd immunity from smallpox vaccine when that was part of routine immunization. So yes, so those models are definitely, um, you know they they are they are certainly not reflective of the of the the kind of immunity that that's in the community today um and and you know if you think about household studies and how important those kind of household studies are now now most of the people in a household will have no immunity to to a pox virus whereas back then you know only the very small children had any kind of um um you know real um, significant susceptibility to it. And I think that that's what's, what's really changed. And that's why I always say, you know, we have to be careful. You know, we know something about this virus. It's not that we don't know anything about it. It's just, we don't know, we don't really understand the virus in its new modern context. And that's what we, you know, we really need to spend time understanding. You know, this, this pandemic has certainly taught us to be humble about what we know and what we don't know. Um, and and modest in our claims of of certainty about how a virus is going to going to act, 
Um, and I think that this is a perfect example of that, that, you know, we, we certainly know it's not that we're starting out with, with zero knowledge. It's just now we have to move quickly to understand this in a new context. And I, I want to ask you, how do you feel about the state of the response, um, especially considering the fact that we're on the heels of the worst pandemic in any of our lifetimes? Well, you know, I, I think it's um, we we have a, a very um, fragile and exhausted health system in place. But at the same time, I think we've learned a lot about uh, surveillance contact, you know, case investigations, contact tracing, uh, the, the public is much more familiar with these terms. So, you know, on the flip side, I think that people have a much greater understanding of, of what this is. So, so there has to be some benefit to that as well. I think that having gone through what we went through with diagnostics and, um, you know, having adequate case, uh, you know, case definitions and um, having having the right information out there, you know, being being worried about not having the right information out there. I think we've learned from that. So, but, but it's, you know, monkeypox is complicated. I mean, this is a, a virus that, that we don't have, we don't have great diagnostics for, you know, we can, but there, there are orthopox assays that can be used. So kind of looking at the bigger family and then and then doing a more sending it off to have a more specific um, test to determine. Okay, if we see that there's orthopox here. It's likely going to be monkeypox. Now we need to 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 look a little further to see if this is actually monkeypox to confirm that. Um, but you know we need to be able to to plus up our our diagnostic capacity. We need to to look at rapid diagnostics because now we're thinking about this as like a sexually transmitted infection as well. Um, and, and being able to, to get those, those diagnostics to providers is going to be really important. Also for providers really being able to recognize what the signs and symptoms are, um, and, and to be able to recognize this kind of characteristic rash and have the general public be able to, to understand it. You know, I mean, these are, these are all key points in a, in a, in a response to, to an outbreak of a, you know, reasonably novel pathogen novel, at least in, in a new setting. Um, so what I would say is that we are better placed today than we were back at the beginning of, of 2020. Um, but you know, of course we can always do better. And of course, um, you know, there, there are always things that we, that we need to, to improve upon. Um, so, so I think the sooner we can really get, you know, we can, we can plus up diagnostics get really good clinical materials out there so the clinicians can diagnose this quickly and to, to raise awareness in communities, the more situational awareness we'll have. And once we have some of the situational awareness, I think it's going to be a lot easier. Just right now, we don't, we don't really understand where we are in all of this. I, you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again here, that this is very similar to, you know, we're tuning into a new TV series. You know, we kind of know what it's about but we don't know what episode we landed on. Is it episode two? Is it episode five? Is it episode 10? Is it season two or three? You know, what did we miss? Where's the origin story? Um, you know, we, we, we really, um, I think we, we need to do some really good, solid epidemiologic investigations 
um, you know, paired with the molecular epidemiology and the, the, um, the sequencing to really get a sense of how many introductions have there been? Um, you know, is this something that has been spreading for a while? You know, are we seeing changes and what kind of changes are we seeing um, as we see these kinds of serial chains of transmission, which, you know, we've, we've only seen in, in limited, um, uh, limited terms in, in sub-Saharan Africa. But here, you know, we, we just may see much longer chains of transmission. So, so things that we just have to keep an eye out for. Um, so, you know, I, I think, um, it's, it's, it's a lot to do in a short period of time. On the one hand, everybody's tired, but on the other hand, everybody knows what to do a lot better than they did before. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, as folks listening out there are thinking about this, how should they be, uh, processing the news and, you know, what level of concern should, should they be holding? That's a loaded question. How to yeah. process the news? <laughs> yeah, there are, um, there are a lot of other things in America that will that will kill you before monkeypox. Unfortunately, about monkey but... Pox, but news about monkeypox is a different story here. Um, uh, I know we've all been been really uh, inundated with really some bad and sad news over the last couple of years here, and 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 um, so how do they need to process monkeypox? Well. You know, I, I think that this is a, a situation where this this is, you know, we've been hitting the snooze button on this alarm for many years. I mean, we've we've known that this is a virus that is, you know, potentially a problem, not just from a practical perspective, but kind of an existential perspective of what's going to happen with vaccination. And are we going to have to really think about completely you know, start, starting to think about bringing back smallpox or, you know, pox virus vaccinations. Um, uh, you know, I, this is a, this is an important warning moment that an infection anywhere is potentially an infection everywhere. And that we have to care about, even for people who don't want to care about it. I mean, you and I, you and I care a lot about what's happening globally. But some people say, well, but, you know, we have to worry about what's going on here. We don't have time to worry about what's going on in other places, but we have to. And, and you know, they're, they're really wonderful, talented, extremely skilled um, researchers in places like DRC and, and, and Nigeria um, that if they had the resources to be able to study these viruses, um, you know, we'd be so much further along. And, and frankly, we would have been able to, to stop this more likely at the source instead of worrying about this kind of international spread. Um, so I think that overall, you know, how should somebody process this? Well, you know, you should, if, if, you're, in a, if you're in a high risk group, um, if you're somebody that is potentially going to be in contact with or has been in contact with somebody who um, may have been exposed to monkeypox or, or has monkeypox, you know, that that's certainly something to, to worry about. Of course, infections never stay in one population. They're all, you know, we all live together. We don't live in vacuums. So, you know, eventually we'll all have to worry about this in one way or another. Um, the extent of that, you know, we, we just don't, don't know at this point. Um, it's not something that is, you know, we, we, we've never seen a death in, um, of, uh, you know, uh, associated with monkeypox outside of Africa. 
So I think, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's no, this isn't a, a panic situation in terms of um, what we're seeing on that level, but, you know, we should all be concerned because this, you know, has big implications for, for what happens in the long term. Um, so that's really how I would process it is it's, it's important. It's something we need to get under control. It's, um, you know, potentially has larger implications um, than just whether or not somebody gets, uh, um, gets infected. Um, and, and that if we don't, if we don't finally get in front of these viruses and, and do the kind of surveillance and have that kind of situational awareness, we're constantly going to be paying that price. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pay now or pay later scenario and we keep wanting to pay later, but you know, it's much more expensive on the, on that later end than on the early end. That's, that's really helpful. So what I'm hearing is if you're a public health professional uh, or a physician or, or nurse uh, out there, pay attention. Uh, to, for everyone else, um, this is one of those things that's not imminently uh, of worry to you now, but um, you know, we all got to do what we can uh, to advocate for a more robust investment in public health, both at home and abroad. Uh, Professor Ramoyne, really appreciate you taking the time to educate us today and, um, and, and to join us. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. A team of advisors to the FDA have recommended that the agency authorize a new vaccine for COVID. You might be wondering, it's been two years since the pandemic even started. More than a year since we've had a safe and effective vaccine. The FDA has recommended three or four doses for everyone but the youngest kids. Why do we need another vaccine again? Well, there are three reasons. First, this vaccine is a more traditional vaccine. It uses COVID proteins to cue an immune response rather than mRNA that encodes those proteins in the first place. While I doubt that there are many people who are still resisting vaccination for whom this particular molecular biology might change their minds, having more approaches and more vaccines just might. But maybe more importantly, the vaccine supply has been limited to mainly two companies in the US. And I think more entrance to the vaccine market will be helpful both for the supply, should we need more, and to quell fears that there's some sort of collusion between the manufacturers. Finally, there's a good immunological argument for diversifying your vaccines. And should we need more boosters, having more ways in will be helpful. In good news for the parents under five, the White House has outlined a plan to rush vaccines out to our kids once the FDA approves them. Look, I'm the father of a four-year-old who had COVID, but given the pace of change of this virus, I know that my kid could still get sick again. And that's why I'm going to make sure she gets vaccinated as soon as we can. Finally, you may have heard these headlines this week. The tumors are gone. With no chemo, no radiation, no surgery. 14 patients with advanced rectal cancer are in remission after taking the same drug. It's a small trial, but so far it had a 100% success rate. All 14 patients enrolled in a study of this new drug, dostarlamab, had a complete response. With no residual evidence of cancer on MRI and no serious side effects. To be sure, this kind of perfect response is unheard of. It almost never happens. Importantly, the drug, dostarlamab, inhibits a receptor on immune cells that stops them from attacking cancer cells. So by turning off the off switch, they turn on the body's own cancer-fighting abilities. So is this the cure for cancer? Well, cancer is complex, and there are many different kinds of cancers and many different pathways to cancer. But it may be a cure for a particular kind of rectal cancer. And it'll certainly improve our understanding of cancer biology in an important way, opening the way for yet more breakthroughs. That's it for today. Oh, and if you haven't checked out my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com slash Abdul El Sayed. That's youtube.com slash A-B-D-U-L-E-L-S-A-Y-E-D. 
And don't forget to like and subscribe and tell your friends. And on your way out, don't forget to rate and review this show. It certainly goes a long way. If you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you drop by the Crooked store for some America Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, our Science Always Wins sweatshirts and dad caps, and our safe and effective tees are on sale for $20. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Taka Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening.